The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. This week, our movement lost a hero and the animals lost a champion. Mary Max was known to the world at large as the elegant former model married to iconic pop artist Peter Max. But in our world, Mary, along with Peter, dedicated themselves to changing the world for non-human beings. Mary helped launch Voters for Animal Rights and the Coalition for Healthy School Food, and she was beside filmmaker Marissa Miller-Wolfson throughout the production and distribution of her landmark film and delightful film, Veducated. Mary was also there for so many activists and influencers individually generally generously lending the Peter Max studio for fundraisers and book launches knowing that that space would attract press and attention to the animals and get non-vegans out as nowhere else could i know that's true because a couple of those book launches were for me mary no one can fill your shoes but here's a promise a whole lot of us are going to try. Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Moran, host for the Main Street Vegan Program. It is a distinct pleasure, as always, to have you with us today. And this is a very special day. This is an anniversary here at the Main Street Vegan radio show and podcast. And that means that we are starting our eighth year today. I can remember doing this very first show in my daughter's apartment back in June of 2012. We did it there because she had better Wi-Fi. And if anybody has been listening from the very beginning, you know that we started out as a two-host program. My daughter, Adair, who wrote the book Main Street Vegan with me, uh, hosted with me for the first I don't know, few months, and then she went off uh, doing her own thing. She's doing amazing things in the world. She's a lifelong vegan, and she's touring now as a stunt performer and an aerialist and um, living her dream and uh, doing it as a vegan, so that makes mom proud. 
So I am proud of my kid, but I'm also proud of my 420 other kids. And those are my graduates of Main Street Vegan Academy, people who come to New York City, or a few of them have come from New York City, uh, to spend six days here and study with some of the best and the brightest in the vegan world and leave at the end of that time certified as vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. And one of my two guests today is someone who did go through that program and has done so many other amazing things in the world. And uh, he's here today with double power because we have Michael Suchman, who is uh, the graduate of Main Street Vegan Academy, and his husband, Dr. Ethan Cement. They've founded and they run the popular blog, Vegan Moe's, where they have recipes that show that eliminating animal products doesn't have to mean giving up your favorite foods. And they took that even further a uh, year, year or two back when they came out with their fabulous cookbook, one of my favorites, uh, which is NYC Vegan, Iconic Recipes for a Taste of the Big Apple. And they have two of just the most adorable dogs you would ever want to meet, Riley and Charlie. Welcome, Michael and Ethan. Oh, thank you so much for having us, Victoria. It is wonderful nice to, to have here, you. Victoria. And even though you are married in the real world, you are calling in from different locations. So if we have the occasional awkward <laughs> silence, we will just chalk that up to the theme for today's program, which is relationships. I was teaching a class this spring and someone came up to me and talked about the difficulty of being vegan when the person you love most in the world just doesn't seem to have an awareness of why this is so important. And I thought, well, I know some people who know all about that. And in fact, you do <laughs> teach a, a class on uh, relationships and food activism out there in the world at Main Street Vegan Academy. So I thought if I could get the two of you on together, we could really deconstruct dating, relationships, and then extended family and, and friends and co-workers. We are a minority, and there's a great big world out there of people who still eat animals and animal products. So let us start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Were you guys both dedicated vegans when you met? <laughs> Not at all. Before we get into that, I just want to sidetrack for one second say, not only is it your anniversary and happy anniversary to you, coincidentally, this weekend is our anniversary. Really? Yes. Well, There's congratulations. This weekend that we eloped up to Toronto to get married. That's perfect. Well, happy yeah, anniversary. So happy Pride. And, and oh, thank you. Thank you. Gosh, thank I'm, you. I'm so glad you guys are in the world and that you found each other and found all your sure. friends who are lucky to know you, too, your friends and your readers. Indeed. Yeah. I would say, though, that, you know, 13 years ago when we eloped up to Toronto um, on the second anniversary of our first date, so we're closing in on 15 years together, um, we were not vegan at all. In fact, um, I have a distinct memory of uh, Michael coming to my office one day um, after having lunch with a mutual friend of ours. And I said, oh, how was lunch today with her? And he said, uh, we went to this place down in the village and it was this vegan restaurant. 
And I said, vegan, what's vegan? I had no idea what vegan was. And this was about two years before we went vegan. And uh, he, he said, it's like vegetarian, but like super more restrictive, which, you know, that's the way we thought about it back then. Um, and of course, that's not the way we think about it now because that's not the reality of it, but it, it was the perception. And uh, yeah, so, and then a couple years later, we got married and a few years later, I went vegan. Um, and it was a really, really interesting process. So what happened when you did that? in your life and in your relationship. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I mean, for me, I guess the story does start with me, right? Uh, it does start I mean, with I you. Had, it does. Because I, I was the one who sort of woke up first. And, um, you know, and I had little awakenings throughout my life um, prior to this with little forays into vegetarianism, um, thinking that I was, you know, not only doing something good for my health, but also for the planet and for the to the animals by not eating eating them, um, and I hadn't yet made the connection between the suffering that goes in to, let's say, making like a glass of milk relative to the suffering that goes into making an eight ounce steak from that same animal. And so, um, I, I, you know, I, I had I had some misconceptions, which I think are really common out there. Um, but eventually, um, I, you know, my, I was in a personal health crisis where I had gained a lot of weight. My cholesterol was completely out of control. Um, I have a family history of high cholesterol and, um, I had been put on a statin by like age 34 and, um, you know, it wasn't like I was somebody who was sedentary or who was really eating by most, um, standards, uh, of the, you know, the standard American diet, I was actually eating a very healthy version of the standard American diet, albeit with animals, obviously, but, um, I was active. I went to the gym five days a week. Um, I was doing everything right, so to speak. Um, and yet my genetics were conspiring with my diet to make me a rather unhealthful version of myself. And they were really, um, following a pattern that particularly on my father's side of the family results usually in heart attack and early death. Sometimes like in the case of my grandfather, sudden heart attack that took his life at age 62. And so, um, you know, I saw the path that I was on and, um, it, it sort of coincided, um, with our, our dog, um, 10 years ago, actually this week, our dog Chandler who passed away, um, uh, I would say maybe three to four months prior to his diagnosis with malignant melanoma, we started realizing that we were up against something pretty horrible and that he was probably in for the fight of his life and likely not to make it. And so um, after his surgery to remove the melanoma, we were a little optimistic, but then when things started going downhill, um, we actually resorted to this canine naturopath um, who said, oh, gosh, we have to take your dog off this diet. You have to go get grass-fed beef. And, like, I, I remember thinking, what else do, do cows eat? Like, of course they eat grass. Well, little did I know they, they rarely do anymore in industrialized food systems. And so I walked into a Whole Foods for the first time. And the reason I walked into a Whole Foods was because my dog needed you know, thirteen ninety nine a pound grass-fed beef. So I went and got this thing for him. And of course, on my way home, I was hungry. So I picked up a bacon, a double bacon cheeseburger at Five Guys with the fries that goes along with it. Um, handed Michael this this magic meat, as it were, and said, "Here, do what the naturopath said to do for Chandler." And then I sat and sunk my teeth into this burger, and something happened, and and it just like something clicked. I got really sick. 
And I don't know if it was the burger that literally physically made me sick or if I had some sort of intervention in that moment from something higher than myself. But um, I just had this moment of, what are you doing? Like, you literally are going out and buying the finest meat, so to speak, that you can find for your for your dog. And you're eating, like, this just awful stuff here. And I knew it was awful for me. Um, and I just sort of wrapped it up and threw it out, walked into the kitchen and told Michael, you know, I, I think I'm going to be a vegetarian. And, um, and so I did become a vegetarian and I also decided that I was going to go on a weight watchers cause I wanted to lose some weight and I thought that could help with my cholesterol. And I was right. I lost a ridiculously unhealthy amount of weight. I lost, I, I lost nearly 40 pounds in 16 weeks. Um, but all that time I was educating myself about the industrialized food system of which I had been a consumer, but of which I knew nothing. And the more I learned, the more horrified I became both on just an ecological level, what we're doing environmentally, um, to the treatment of animals that I had always believed, like I think most people do, you know, are, are, are living reasonably good lives until they're obviously slaughtered. Um, and, um, you know, the more I learned, the more it became very clear to me that my being a vegetarian might be having some impact on my health, but a greater impact of the type that I'm looking for um, would have been to go vegan. And the greater social impact, both for the environment and particularly for the animals who I've always cared deeply for, um, would be for me to absolutely go vegan. And so I started grappling with what 10 years ago appeared to be a very, very radical decision. Oh my God, I can't be vegan, you know. But eventually I wrapped my head around it and in so doing, um, said, you know, if I can do my favorite holiday, which is Thanksgiving, it's my favorite food holiday, I should say, um, uh, if, I can, if I can do a vegan Thanksgiving, then I can do any holiday vegan, and then I'm sad. So after visiting Michael's family up in Westchester, a suburb outside here in New York, where we, we uh, had a family Thanksgiving where I basically ate salad and nothing else because <laughs> there was nothing else there that was vegan for me. Um, and they all thought I was dieting, so that was cool. Um, uh, I came home to a tofurkey roast, which I had never had before, but which is still delicious and one of my favorites. And um, made all the sides, made them all vegan. We sat down, we ate that, that now famous meal. And we were both, I think, honestly, just totally blown away at how delicious it was and how we really weren't missing anything on that plate. Nothing was missing, nothing flavor-wise, nothing like culturally for us. All of our stuff was on that plate, except for the suffering and the cruelty. And I put my fork down and said, that was incredible. And Michael even said to me, that was really good. And I looked at him and I said, that's it, I'm vegan. And, I, and Michael, uh, were you thrilled? I thought it was just going to be a phase. <laughs> You know, because I love my husband and I will support whatever he wants to do, but I truly thought that this was just a phase. It was not going to last. But what happened was as soon as Ethan went vegan, he had all this great knowledge because, like he had said, he had done all this reading about the industrial food um, process and whatnot so that when he made the commitment to go vegan now became the time to share all of that information with everybody, and most particularly with his husband, 
very loudly, very often. So mealtimes became a little bit of a challenge. Um, at the time, I was able to leave the office earlier than Ethan was, so I was in charge of doing most of our cooking. So I would make 90% 90 90 of the meals we had were identical. It was just our, for want of a better phrase, dense protein in the meal was different. For me, it would usually be either a piece of a chicken or something like that, whereas for Ethan, it would be tofu or seitan or tempeh. And unfortunately, my meals were often accompanied with the, oh, how is your plate of murder? <laughs> Which is not exactly the way to get people to listen to what you're saying. However, you know, over time, I think Ethan did realize that, you know, when you keep pushing at someone, you are literally pushing them away from you. If you want them to come where you are, you have to create space for it. So he, once the conversation turned away from how is your plate of murder into just leading by example, I suddenly didn't feel this pressure of, oh, I have to do this too. And I was able to then sit quietly and make my own choice. Do I, is this something that I wanted to do? Intellectually, I knew everything Ethan was saying was true and correct. However, I had such an attachment to the foods I liked that it became the struggle for me, which was more important, my moment of palate pleasure versus making the ethical and moral commitment. And around this time, I had seen Kathy Freston on Oprah, and she talked about her husband, who was flexitarian, meaning he was vegan some of the time, not vegan the rest of the time. And I thought, okay, I can do that easily. So I started doing Meatless Mondays. And after a couple of months of Meatless Mondays, I threw in Tofu Tuesdays and then Vegetable Wednesdays and on down the line until I guess it had been about a year and a half process for me that Ethan and I were at a friend's birthday party down on the beach in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and we knew there'd be no food there that either of us would choose to be eating. But there was a restaurant nearby that had a, it was a pizza restaurant that had a full vegan menu to complement the non-vegan menu. We'd been many times, and when we got there, Ethan said, do you know what you're gonna have? And I said, well, I know what I really want to order, but I know what I'm going to order. And very graciously, Ethan said, you, you know you don't have to do anything for me. I said, nope, I totally get that. So I ordered off the vegan menu. At the end of the meal, I put my fork down, looked across the table at him, and said, I'm vegan. And he was very That's confused. That's so cool. So he said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> this is now, I've done a full seven days vegan. So I'm, I'm vegan now. And that was it. There was no looking back. So, Michael, and lots then, of times when people <laughs> go vegan, okay. quote, now for it, somebody oh, else, you know, it dark. doesn't. So did your okay. heart really change in that seven days or were you just trying to do something nice for the person you love? Um, I think the Meatless Mondays at first became a doing something for the person I love as well as just trying to, <coughs> excuse me, keep the peace as it were. But I think at that point I knew 
I knew everything Ethan had told me and I had he had shared with me that he had read was true. You no one can think that an animal just willingly walks up to a slaughterhouse and says, Hi, please take my body to feed someone. So I knew that there were animals that had to be killed for our food. I knew that cows just didn't voluntarily produce milk. However, it was the selfish desire for that palate pleasure, the foods that I knew, the flavors I knew, the tastes I knew, versus knowing I could never have that again, but it would be doing the right thing. And it was a very... yeah. I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say, I think there was another thing that was going on at the time that, that strikes me as something that was a really big part of it too, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like vegan was not nearly as easy then as it is now, right? It wasn't nearly as convenient as it is now in most places. Oh, gosh, no. Um, going out to eat, going like shopping was a challenge. Going out to eat... Even here in a city like New York, it was still a little bit challenging to us, and, and we had not yet realized that, that, you know, we needed to start really eating at different types of restaurants and things like that, and that we wanted to support more vegan-friendly establishments, and it was just, it was, or we would go on these vacations to these places where we've been before, and then all of a sudden, I can't eat half the food, that kind of thing, um, and we had not wrapped our minds about how to travel vegan yet, and so Unfortunately, I think that while I was going through the learning curve that a lot of vegans go through when they first make the commitment to go vegan, um, uh, Michael was witnessing it and, again, seeing the restriction and the hardship associated with it. And that, I think, had a real deterrent effect on him. Uh, Just like who would want to give up the convenience in our convenience-oriented culture, right? I mean, am I wrong about that, that, Michael? That is definitely... I think on a subconscious level, that was absolutely a big big roadblock for me, was seeing the struggle you were going through at that time and not sure that I wanted to put myself through that same situation. What is cool for me now looking on is that not only are you both vegan, but you you are both extremely vegan – and you're vegan for all reasons. You're both very active uh, in animal rights. You're amazing cooks and recipe creators. So what do you think happens when somebody opens that door marked vegan? I think it's almost like Dorothy being dropped in the land of Oz. You go from this <laughs> black and white world that you've always known to suddenly this world full of just vibrant colors and things you've never even dreamed of and these wonders that are just continually unfolding and welcoming to you. That's that's a beautiful image. I think for me, I think about it, it's interesting when people think about walking through that door that's vegan, I think that that image of the door is that you're walking through a door into something that's unknown and certainly it's something that is unexperienced. But I feel like that door vegan takes you into the core of who we all really are. And I think that that core, when you walk into that door, there's a remembering that happens, literally a remembering of one's own higher self. And you become more integrated as a person. You become more connected, ideally, as a person to other people, to the animals, to the earth. And you going into that space, 
remember who you really are and you inhabit that space. And it's a bit of a coming home, but no one ever really told you about that. But coming into your own true higher self where you can be at peace with yourself because you're at peace with the world around you. There's something about that that is just, it's, it's really quite indescribable. It's something that has to be experienced. That is so beautiful. And I know you guys don't know this yet, and my listeners don't know yet because I haven't told anybody, but I'm just about to embark on my 14th book that is about the spiritual side of veganism and just what you're wow. talking about. So I'm going to have to interview you if you'd be willing for the book and, and just <laughs> sure. give me your sense of what happens internally at a soul level when you do walk through that amazing door. So thank you so much for sharing that side of yourself with me. Of course. <laughs> so cool. So just in, in our last two and a half minutes of this segment, why don't you finish up on your story? And then in the next part, we'll start giving other people your hard-earned advice on uh, how, how to navigate relationships in their lives. So, so what happened once you were both vegan? Did your extended families uh, clap and cheer? Well, initially, <laughs> when I first went vegan, stop laughing, Ethan, I probably got on a soapbox that was even bigger than Ethan's and started shouting from the rafters and trying to wake people up. And then I eventually realized that I was now doing what Ethan had done towards me even more so, and it was having the exact same effect of pushing people away. So I just had to stop, take a breath, and say, okay, just lead by example. As for yeah, our family... I think, yeah, our, our was, families were... We had an inverse response to each other, right, to our families, um, where, sure. whereas Michael's my family, family... My coming out sorry, as gay to them was a lot easier than me coming out as vegan. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and they handled it a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whereas I had the complete opposite experience when I had a very terrible coming out experience when 20-something you know, years ago, um, which has since obviously restored and my parents are wonderful and supportive of us both. But, um, but uh, my coming out as vegan was, was hugely wonderful for them because they're Orthodox Jewish and they keep kosher. So now their attitude was, great, we can all eat in your house. Oh, isn't that sweet? So just, uh, you know yeah. what, I'm going to ask you the kosher question when we come back because we only have 30 seconds left in this segment and I want to make sure we keep everything on our very strict radio clock. So let me just tell the listeners where they can find you. So you are vegan most all over everywhere. I'm always so impressed when people have their URLs and their social media all lined up. So vegan mos m o s everywhere Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and the book N Y C Vegan Iconic Recipes for a Taste of the Big Apple. Okay, we'll be back with more vegan mos after this. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, celebrating Pride Month with the LGBTQ community. When listeners like you contribute to Unity Online Radio, you're making a positive difference in your life 
and the lives of other spiritual seekers. Go to UnityOnlineRadio.org and click on Donate to make a one-time donation or sign up for monthly contributions. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Wisdom Moment with Eric Butterworth. I love those lines of William Blake. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wildflower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. That's a kind of relativity that I think we all need to deal with prayerfully. So in a sense, what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount and what I'm trying to say to you this morning and perhaps looking in a mirror saying to myself, more importantly, slow me down, Lord. Let me get in tune. Let me get off the treadmill. Let me get the sense of oneness with the rhythm of life. Let me get in tune with a pace that is not related to the ticking of a clock, but to the divine flow in which great ideas easily and effectively and timelessly unfold themselves and manifest themselves in the right way at the right time and in a harmonious outworking that is right and good for all concerned. Slow me down, Lord. To hear more talks from Eric Butterworth, visit truthunity.net. Ready to roll the dice? Check out the new intention dice from Unity. Five dice, different colors, each with words that can prompt you to set an intention for the day, create an affirmation, or journal your thoughts. Roll the green die for abundance and see what comes up. Enriched, worthy, generous. Blue for health. Energetic, whole, radiant. Five dice, limitless possibilities for your life. Find them at unity.org dice. Would you like to show your support for Unity Online Radio? You can donate easily on your phone by texting the word VOICE to 50555 and donate $10 to support Unity Online Radio. It's easy to do, and your offering will help us keep inspirational and positive programming on the air. Remember, just text the word VOICE to 50555 and support your favorite shows on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Enroll in the Mystery School with Maggie Whitehouse every Monday at 2 p.m. Central. Based in the U.K., Maggie is a maverick priest, comedian, and writer that'll introduce you to all things mystical. Join in the conversation with some fascinating guests and explore topics like Kabbalah, the divine feminine, shamanism, and a lot more. Explore some new ideas and provocative topics, all delivered with a sense of humor. Check out our online schedule or get the podcast on demand here on unityonlineradio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody, I want to give a shout out to the Main Street Vegan blog this week. The post is about brain health. It's very practical, full of actual foods we all need to be eating to protect our brains and be really smart and have good memories as long as we are walking on this planet. It's written by Sarah Easton, who is an environmental scientist in Colorado and also a graduate of Main Street Vegan Academy. 
And next week, I will be in my hometown of Kansas City, where we're going to be showing the film A Prayer for Compassion, which suggests to people who identify as religious or spiritual that perhaps looking at at vegan living might be the next step. And we're going to be doing that a couple of times. One time is at the Unity People's Convention. So Unity, who sponsors this program, has chosen this film about veganism from all the films they could have on on movie night. And they're going to be showing this one to the, the ministers and the active members who converge there in Overland Park kansas for that conference so that's very very cool on uh the tuesday the 18th of june and on the 20th if you happen to be in that part of the world we're going to be doing a free public screening of the film at unity temple on the plaza so you can just check out kansas city a prayer for compassion and find out about that Hope to see you there. And you can also look uh, on the film's page at MainStreetVegan.net and find out if a screening is planned in your area. And if not, just be in touch. You can do one yourself. doesn't cost anything. It's pretty easy. And golly, the animals will thank you. And you might meet some veg-curious people in your own area that you didn't even know were there. So we are talking today with Michael Suchman and Dr. Ethan Cement. They're the authors of NYC Vegan, Iconic Recipes for a Taste of the Big Apple. They blog at Vegan Mo's, and they're just fabulous on the food stuff. But today we're talking about relationship stuff, because sometimes when you've got a mixed marriage or a mixed office or who knows what, vegans and non-vegans, Sometimes it's not easy, so we're going to try to get through some of these uh, issues and areas today and make it easier for you if maybe a whole lot of the people that you love eat differently and don't really understand what you're trying to do. So, um, Ethan, let's start with you. Let's say that there is a vegan listening to this program, and I'll bet there are thousands of them, whose girlfriend, boyfriend, Mm -hmm. spouse, just... It's not interested, maybe even antagonistic. What do you say to them? Yeah. So what I say is I totally understand your desire to push. But when you push somebody, uh, just imagine that I'm pushing my arms out and pushing someone, and I physically shove them. Which direction do they move in? Do they move towards me or away from me? And, you know, when you push somebody, very often, if the person is not looking to be encouraged towards something, and it's one thing if somebody's walking towards something and you gently encourage them. But when you push people, first of all, pushing is a pretty violent thing to do. Um, and I would argue that on, on a sort of a psychological and psycho-spiritual level, it's a little bit violent to push someone out of their comfort zone when they're not ready to receive certain amounts of information. Um, we talk about, about how we were sleeping before we woke up to the realities around us about what happens to animals and how we turn them into food um, and the ways that we use them. And, um, you know, when somebody's in a deep dream, what's the one thing they teach you not to do? You don't just violently shake them down awake. It's a very, very, very violent thing to do. Um, and so I get the urge to do it, but I don't think it's strategic. And from my own experience, it doesn't work. And... You know, in, in, in retrospect, and of course, hindsight being 2020, what I've come to remember is that, you know, we live in a very doing-focused, physically-oriented world. But if you identify as a spiritual being, um, and if you 
think of your life as, as, as being one of being a spiritual being, having a human experience, which I do and always have. Uh, then I, I think about it in terms of, you know, what do I need to do? I need to breathe. I need to love. That's what I need to do. Everything else, this idea that the world puts on us that we need to do something, I need to make my husband vegan, I need to force him to do this, I need to push him towards this. You know, we're not human doings, we're human beings. So be the change. Gandhi didn't say do the change. (laughs) Gandhi didn't say push the change. He didn't say that, he said be the change. It's saying lead by example. And when I stopped pushing and doing, and when I started being, and just sort of standing up in my own center of truth and shining that light out and saying, look, this is what I do, it gets enough attention. It really does. It gets people's attention when you're doing it for you and you're not doing it to get them. People notice. You may not even notice that they're noticing you, but they're noticing you. And it has a far greater power in that sort of spiritually self-aware, grounded practice. That was incredibly beautiful and I think very effective. I do want to, just before we move on to Michael, I want to ask a devil's advocate question. So we've got this vegan with the people around him or her that just don't get it. And all she's thinking about is the animals, but the animals are suffering. That that hot dog, that dish of ice cream, that is suffering and death. How, how can you it talk is. this person down a little bit? So, you know, that's something that I struggle with. And, and, I, and I cycle through, through this maybe five, six times a day at times. And other times I'm really good with it. And other times I'm really having a hard time with it. Um, I think it is the struggle that, that we all take on when we, when we choose to embrace the awareness and not look away. When we refuse to stop looking away, we acknowledge that we live in a world where 62 billion land animals per year and over a trillion sea animals are murdered every year solely for human consumption and purposes. And that's a number that's so staggering when you think about the fact that just there are a few million animals in the U.S. alone that are being killed in this hour while we're talking. It, it's it's it can be a paralyzing thing to actually stop and think about. And then to be confronted at it when you're sitting with your family, your loved ones, your partner, your coworkers, people at your, your community of faith, while they're sitting there and eating these animals and their bodies, right? It can be very disorienting. And I think the number one thing is don't do anything for yourself that makes you feel like it's unsafe. So if it feels unsafe for you to be in that environment in that moment, then just tell people, look, this feels unsafe to me, and you need to just sort of extricate yourself from a situation that doesn't feel safe for you emotionally. Um, Because your feelings are real, because the the horror and the tragedy is real. And then beyond that, you know, I often can talk myself out of those situations by saying, that animal that that my, my husband is sitting there and eating right now is dead. I can't do anything to save that animal. But what I can do is sit down at this table with him and, and, and represent positively for veganism, show that I'm enjoying this delicious food, be patient, be tolerant, because 
the sad reality is that all of these millions and millions and billions of animals who are being bred into and slaughtered through and processed through this industrialized food system, they're doomed. We can't save them, but for the, the sparse few who are lucky enough to make it to sanctuary. The reality is they're doomed, and that's a hard reality to accept. But, you know, uh, maybe it's because I'm a doctor and I, I, I learned how to triage things. I can't do anything to save those animals. But what I'm trying to do is save the animals who might otherwise be bred into existence for consumption after a lifetime of cruelty in five years and 10 years and 20 years or 100 years from now. This is a long game. This is not a short game. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So we have to keep our eyes on the bigger picture here. It's about creating a vast sweeping social change, one which I think is actually working, and, and understanding that that begins with one-on-one -on -one human connections. Wow, thank you. Now, Michael. <laughs> Yeah. Can can you talk to, to the other up, people die. involved in this equation? What if somebody is listening today because they have a girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse who is vegan and they just don't get it or they're not ready or they just wish this person could talk about something else and maybe they're kind of missing the person that used to be. Ooh, that's a really, really good one. So to that person, I would say that person that you fell in love with, your partner, is still, they're still the same person. They are just very excited about this information and they want to share it with you and they want to take you on this journey with them. And the way to handle it is you know, when the conversation turns to food and veganism, just very politely say, you know, I understand this is something that is very, you're very passionate about and very meaningful to you, but that's not where I am right now in my life. It does not mean that I won't be there someday, but I can't always be having conversations about it with you because it feels like an attack on me. And I think when it's pointed out that they're feeling attacked, the person who's doing it, who is newly vegan and whose whole mission in life is compassion and about being kind, when they realize that their words and actions in this instance are not aligning with where they are, the path they've taken, it will help them to realize, oh, you know what, this isn't the best way to do this. And ideally, that per the person who is vegan will learn to pull back and temper the conversations and not alienate because there's often this perception that vegans are angry people. And it comes from this constant pushing and trying to get everyone else to see what you see. And I think it's a question of remembering that before we were vegan, we weren't vegan. And so just because you woke up today doesn't mean everyone else is going to wake up tomorrow. Everyone's going to do it ideally in their own time. Yes, we'd all love it to be very quick. The reality is it's not. So I think if you are feeling attacked by your vegan partner, just very kindly say to them, you know, I feel like you are attacking me, you are judging me. It's very unkind what you are doing. 
And I, ideally, that will help the vegan partner just step back and reset and realize, you know, I can't do that. Mm. That would be my advice. Well, that is great advice. You know, would, Let's just bring it practical for a minute. And, and I know you've done so much, obviously, with food, with the, the blog, the, the book and everything. And you did mention that before you, Michael, were, were vegan, you basically ate the same thing, but you just had a different piece of whatever on top of the salad right. or, or the stir fry. So do you advise that people really sit down and come up with ground rules, like this is what's going to be in the house and so forth, or just kind of play it by ear and see how it plays out? I think setting up some kind of ground, <coughs> excuse me, I've got a horrible cough. Setting up some ground rules at the outset would be really helpful. Um, good friend of all of ours, and I don't think she will mind me talking about this, J.L. Fields. When she won't mind. Met, when we first met <laughs> J.L. and her husband Dave, they were a mixed marriage just like Ethan and I were. Dave and I were not vegan. J.L. and Ethan were vegan. And it, it was a great sense of bonding for us over that because we could look at the other two and the other couple and kind of understand exactly where they were and what they were experiencing. And J.L. told us that when she went vegan, pretty much the rule became in the house that in the house, you know, you know, she would not cook anything that was not vegan. So if Dave wanted non-vegan food, he had to cook it himself. And I think that's a perfectly fair compromise. I would never ask someone who was vegan to cook an animal for, you know, when I wasn't vegan. That's just wrong. It would be like asking someone who's kosher to cook you ham or bacon. You just wouldn't do it. So I think having some kind of ground rules at the outset is great and understanding that you know, rules can change over time and just keep revisiting them and just keep the conversation going. That makes sense. I want to move a little bit while um, we're still on this call and talk about this. This is Pride Week and in New York, as we were talking during the break, it's Pride Month because of the anniversary of, of the Stonewall. So talk to us about the coming out process. You've already compared coming out as gay and coming out as, as vegan, but I have heard a, a lot of people coming from a gay perspective and saying that animal rights has some intersectionality with gay rights. So tell us about that. Sure. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think that intersectionality has become like a really um, interesting catchphrase um, nowadays. And I think it's important that we have these conversations. I think it's also important at the outset of these kinds of conversations that we recognize the fact that while all oppressions and oppressive structures have similarities to them, the, um, the oppressions themselves may be similar and they may intersect in certain places, but they're not the same. No two oppressions are exactly the same. So, for example, um, if we think about sexism, it, it, it has a lot of power structure dynamics that are very similar to homophobia. And those have very similar structural components to them, to racism or Islamophobia or any other form of hate, wherein someone from the dominant group in a cultural setting oppresses or um, puts upon somebody who is minoritized or of a group of people who are minoritized. And um, 
that's an important similarity to look at. But all of these oppressions are individual, they are unique, and they are separate. And I think that's a really important thing to, to recognize. I think one of the things that makes animal rights very unique um, and the issue of, um, of, of, of humans exploiting, utilizing, and killing animals for whatever purposes, um, uh, I think what makes it very unique compared to other movements, you know, when I think about the progress that's been made in our lifetime, Michael and my lifetime, you know, we were both born in 1971, um, which is two years after the Stonewall riots, which happened uh, the last weekend of June in 1969, when um, after years of cops here in New York raiding um, different uh, gay bars in, in, in the West Village, um, they raided the Stonewall Bar and on Christopher Street, and it was a bunch of, of, of trans people and drag queens who basically all together in that room and gay men and, and, and lesbians who just sort of stood up and said, enough with this. This is the United States of America and you don't get to do this to me. You don't get to terrorize me in my own space. And they fought back. And, you know, the first gay pride, as we think of it now, 50 years ago, it was a riot. That's really what it was. It wasn't a parade. It was a riot. It was people fighting for their rights. And those rights have come in drips and drabs, and the progress has happened slowly um, and steadily in some areas. In other areas, it's, it's going backwards in our country right now um, on LGBT rights. But the thing that has always propelled us forward is that we've had straight allies. And that's what's made the progress, certainly in the marriage equality sort of uh, end of things. The reason that that whole thing got so escalated and, and moved and had so much momentum in the past 10 years until we finally had national marriage equality is really because we've had allies. And it's our straight allies who are part of the dominant group who speak up and say, hey, I'm not okay with that. I'm not going to be a bystander while we go after my lesbian child or my, my gay brother or my trans sister or whatever it is. And when we stand up for each other and we're allies for each other, that's how social change really hits lightning speed. And what's unique about the animal rights movement is none of us are advocating for our own selves. We are a movement entirely composed of allies. And so in our allyship with our non-human brothers and sisters, we have a powerful voice to say, I'm not standing up here for me. I'm standing up here for them. And I don't have a sister who's a, a cow. I don't have a daughter who's a pig. I, I'm standing up because it's the right thing to do. It's a very powerful, clear, moral voice, which is why it's often met with such, such sort of resistance. Um, and so I think, you know, there is, there's a lot of similarity. I think it's, it's not coincidental that a lot of minoritized individuals and individuals from minoritized groups in our culture are, are heavily represented within the animal rights movement uh, and vegan communities around the world. But, um, but yeah, there's, a, that, there's that really unique distinction. And I think it's, a, it's, it's curious. I think it's important. And I think it, it informs our strategies in ways that could be really potentially groundbreaking for the animals. How beautifully put. Uh, anything to add? <laughs> I could um, not have said it that well, so I definitely could not have said it better. So <laughs> I have nothing to add to that. I think Ethan 
really nailed it. I think about this mm. a lot. <laughs> I think about this a lot. <laughs> oh, I, I could tell that you do. That was a very, very thoughtful like, answer. Um, thank you. So I know that sure. you're, um, I'm, I'm unclear on whether both of you or just one of you is involved with uh, an animal sanctuary. And I'd like oh, to yeah. hear why you have chosen to devote time and energy to a sanctuary and what the sanctuary movement means to animals and to the people who experience a sanctuary. So um, it's Ethan here, and I'm, I'm actually the president of the board of directors at Woodstock Farm Sanctuary. And both Michael and I um, made this commitment um, for me to step into this space in my service to the board for the past four years. Um, because it's a family decision because it takes a lot of my time and energy away from other things that I could be doing. So there was no way I could do this without Michael's direct support um, and and buy-in on this. But um, sanctuaries are vegan makers. That's the reason I do this. Um, you know, I didn't personally go to a sanctuary until I had already been vegan for, for three years. But sanctuaries are, are real vegan makers. And, you know, there's, a, there's an unfortunate discussion that happens in certain corners of the, the world of fundraising where people are suggesting that maybe sanctuaries aren't, uh, aren't as valuable as other, other means of advocacy. And, I mean, the first thing I would point out is that sanctuaries are more than just a means of advocacy. They are literally life-saving for the victims of industrialized animal uh, farming. That's the first thing. Um, we are actually literally saving individual lives. And so if for no other reason, if we value life as vegans, this is at the core of what veganism is all about. So sanctuaries live at the heart of veganism. But beyond that, what we do, for example, at Woodstock, we don't just save these animals and give them lifelong care and sanctuary and rescue them and give them all the veterinary care and, and however long their lives are. What we do is we then connect these animals with people, ordinary people who come to visit them, to meet them, to hear their stories in the hopes that we can promote veganism. And in the past two years, we've been doing exit interviews there, and we've been doing follow-up interviews for up to 12 months with people who've come for the first time to the sanctuary. And we have over 90% of people who are coming to, sanctuary, to our sanctuary who are saying that after visiting, they make immediate changes to their diet, many of them going vegan after visiting the sanctuary, it's hard to meet the victims of animal and the agri agricultural industry without then going home and saying, okay, now I'm going to turn that off and not think about that cute little cuddly pig or that beautiful cow who, who snuggled up with me or that baby goat. You know, that this is what we do. And the idea is to help people make these connections. I think that's what this is all about. Veganism is about reconnecting and remembering who we are connecting ourselves to each other as humans, connecting ourselves to each other as humans and non-humans. I mean, I think it, it, it dovetails nicely into our discussion today about relationships. It's about just maintaining that connection. Like Michael said before, you know, it's all about just communicating your needs. And I think all of us who've been in any relationship for any length of time understand that like, if you don't communicate your needs in a relationship, if you don't communicate what is and isn't working for you, that's when things start to break down and so just saying like you know i need this i need that you know i need you to keep meat out of the refrigerator i need you to not eat meat in front of me i need you to 
visit an animal sanctuary with me, whatever, whatever your needs are, communicate them. And this is what we do, um, uh, you know, on a different level at sanctuaries. We're really looking to connect people with each other, connect people with the animals, and, and trust that, that that inherent sense of justice, empathy, and love for one another is going to eventually click in. We might be planting seeds that will take 20 years to germinate. Who knows? But but we are planting those seeds because one day we're going to have a huge forest full of vegans. And that's, that's, that is, that's the goal of sanctuaries. Wow, I love that. A huge forest full of vegans. Thank you so, so very much, Michael Suchman, Dr. Ethan Cement. Vegan Moes, everybody, if you don't know them already, find them. You will be so, so glad that you did. In our last minute, those of you who listen regularly know that as we leave the first seven years of this program behind and we go on into the next seven or however long we choose to stay with this, we have been running a contest for a new closing line. And today we have a winner, and that is Gail DuRivage from California. Here's what she sent. And here's how I will be closing this show for the next however long. So to all of you listening, be blessed, be kind, be healthy, be vegan. Thanks, everybody. And we will be back next week with more of the Main Street Vegan program. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you want to deepen your connection to the divine, speed up your progress on the spiritual path, then tune in to the Spirit Matters podcast. I'm the host, Philip Goldberg. And I interview experts with wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for every seeker of truth. Spirit Matters on the mindbodyspirit.fm network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.